Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Worship is usually a positive experience. Worshiping together, therefore, is relatively easy. But what about suffering? Are we also willing to suffer together? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Worship Together with this sermon entitled We Worship Together in Suffering, which uses various texts. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We are now in uh, week four of our series that we're calling Worship Together. And uh, I feel like each time we start a series, we move through it pretty quickly. Next week will be the last week in this series, and then we'll move into our Advent focus for the rest of the year as we uh, lead up to Christmas. Uh, but as, as we think about this topic and this biblical truth of the importance of worshiping together, there's something I want us to focus in on today that you may not necessarily associate with worship or maybe even worshiping together as the corporate body and how it fits together. So let me pray for us. I know Randy just prayed. I want to just again go before the Lord, ask him to bless this time, and then we'll jump into it. So Father, thank you. Thank you for the great privilege it is every single week to open your word. And we ask that this morning, uh, that it would not be like any other, unlike any other Sunday morning, in the sense that you would show up and you would do what only you can, that your spirit would move, you'd press deep into our hearts, uh, the truths of who you are, opening our eyes to the beauty of Jesus. So we ask you to bless it, the reading, the teaching of your word, the receiving and application of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I've, I've mentioned this uh, recently, and, and I'll bring it up again, but back in, the, back in the spring for spring break, Rachel and I took the kids on uh, the, Great American, the Great American Vacation Adventure. We finally were able to get out west, and uh, we did uh, the classic northern Arizona, southern Utah loop where we hit the Grand Canyon and some of the other attractions there. And uh, it was phenomenal. One of the things that we did while we were there is we, we went to Zion National Park, which is gorgeous. I highly recommend it if you're ever out in that area or make it a trip. It's worth a visit just all by itself. And as we were there at Zion, we, we took a Jeep tour. And the Jeep tour took us around the southern uh, rim of, of uh, the overlook into Zion National Park. And it was awesome. And we were, we were going down these really narrow dirt kind of sand paths in this uh, cool Jeep where you sit on the top of it. And as we're making our way through it, the, the tour guy that was leading us, and it was just our family, which was really cool. Uh, and he was leading us and he was pointing out some of the vegetation along the way. And which I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a botanist, I'm not into forestry, and so I'm just kind of like, okay, that's interesting. And so I just make a comment uh, that was true, but I'm just engaging conversation with him. And so as we're going, I just say, man, these cedar trees are just gorgeous, and they smell amazing. And he says, well, those are actually not cedar trees that you're looking at. Those are juniper trees. And I said, oh, okay, Mr. Expert. You know, I, I didn't say that, but, <laughs> but I felt that. Um, but I did, it intrigued me. I was like, okay, this looks, you just pointed out a cedar tree a moment ago. This looks just like a cedar tree. And so he stops the Jeep and he begins to give us a tutorial on the difference between a juniper tree and a cedar tree. And even though I did not care, <laughs> I found myself really interested. 
The more he showed like the difference in the needles and the difference in the little, little seeds that grow out of them and all that, the more I was like, wow, that's actually interesting. And then we spent uh, more time driving towards the rim and me trying to guess which one was which and missing almost every time. That's a juniper, nope, that's a cedar. No, that's a cedar, nope, that's a juniper. It was so hard to tell, but if you get up close, it, you could actually see the subtle but clear differences between the two. Now, I say that just to use as a way of analogy towards, I think, an uncomfortable reality for us is if you identify as a Christian, if you have placed your faith in Christ, here's something that we don't like to admit very often, but is uh, often true, and that's this. There are differentiating markers that should exist in the life of a Christian that set us apart from the world around us that weighed against the world around us. It's very clear who we are and what we are, what's true of us. But what's, what the uncomfortable truth is, just like the juniper and cedar trees, oftentimes it's really hard to tell the difference between a believer and a non-believer, one who follows Christ and one who doesn't. And that's hard oftentimes for us to admit because we find ourselves just allowing ourselves to be grafted into the ways of the world. And one of the ways that the Bible speaks very, not just clearly, but often, a topic and a way in which he says this is how Christians should look is what we look like as it pertains to suffering. There is a distinct way that we should suffer, that we're called to suffer. And here's the truth, all humans suffer. In this life, in this broken, fallen world, Every human at some point will suffer to some extent, some more than others. Some have not experienced suffering yet in their life, but will, because everything around us and everything in us at some level is broken. Not just broken, but marred by sin. And so with that comes the consequences of sin, which includes suffering. And so we will suffer. So what, what are the differentiating markers this should be present in the believer's life, both individually and corporately, that says this is Christian suffering. And it looks different than how the world suffers. It has ingredients, if you will. It has little seeds, if you will. It has pine needles that mark, it, uh, mark itself out, if you will, from how the world would suffer. So here's the truth. Here's the main truth for this morning that I want you to latch on to. As Christians... It's imperative that we understand, embrace, and steward our suffering. That we understand, embrace, and steward our suffering, both individually and corporately. For if our worship is to be together, our suffering is to be together as well. We suffer together as we worship together. We suffer together as we worship together. So let's jump in. I want to answer the question, this simple question. What does the Bible teach us about suffering, about Christian suffering? I'm going to give you four things. The first one is this. We share in the suffering of Christ. Now, I'm going to give you more than usual. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture. And, I, and in some instances, I'm just going to read the passage or the verse and not even give much commentary, if any, to it because I want the word of God to be the, ver the primary voice this morning. Because there's some things that as we, whenever we approach a topic like this, whenever we're looking at, okay, what does the Bible say about Christian suffering? It's not necessarily one that you show up to church to listen to. 
It's not one that you say, oh, man, I can't wait till that sermon is preached. And so rather than hearing from me primarily, I want you to hear from the word of God to say, what is his heart as it pertains to the body of Christ as we worship together and as we suffer together? And so first thing, we share in the sufferings of Christ. This is so clear in the Bible, so clear in the New Testament. It's all the way through Old Testament and New, but specifically in the New Testament as we begin to understand how our suffering attaches to, if you will, the sufferings of Jesus. Look at Romans 8, 16 and 17, says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So there's a lot of truth just in these two quick verses here. I mean, what's being communicated to us is this. It's that Jesus, this is the implicit reality of the text, Jesus is our older brother. In first century Jewish culture, it was very clearly understood, and this is all throughout Hebrew culture as well, throughout the Old Testament, the older brother, the oldest brother, is the one who receives the inheritance. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is what happened when Jacob tricked Esau in, 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 uh, into getting the blessing. And so this is part of what's going on here is that Jesus comes in as our older brother. In other words, he achieves for us the inheritance that we can't. And so it says that we, through Christ, are made children of God through our older brother. And so he's won for us our inheritance. And what is that inheritance? Well, it's, inher it's an inheritance of adoption into the family, that we are now all brothers and sisters in Christ through him. It's also an inheritance of being declared righteous, that we are righteous in the sight of God, even though we are sinners and even though we've offended God by our sin and should be judged and condemned because of our sin, now through Jesus, our older brother, we have the inheritance of acceptance, of righteousness, of fullness, of approval in the, in the, in the throne room, the judgment seat of God, if you will. And we have the inheritance of suffering. And you go, wow, that, that's, I was good with all the other parts of that inheritance. I didn't sign up for the suffering, but if we're going to identify with Jesus through faith in him as our older brother, then we also share with him in his suffering. This is how Paul said it again in Philippians 3. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, there's that righteousness piece again, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. All right, now pause. Why? Why would he consider, and we'll talk in a moment about what all he let go, but why would he consider losing all that, suffering the loss of all that is gain? Watch what he says. He did it all so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and here it is, may share and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I didn't read it, 
but previous, right before I picked up in verse seven there, where he says, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul lays out for his readers what all he had going for him. This is what Paul said. He said, now this is, this is not gonna mean anything to you, uh, most likely, unless you have grown up in a Jewish context, but to his first century Jewish readers, they would have been uh, amazed at his pedigree. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee and blameless under the law. In other words, and listen, I'm not condoning this movie, but if you've ever seen Anchorman, there's that part where Will Ferrell says, I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. (laughs) Paul's saying that. He's saying, listen, I don't know if you know this or not, I'm kind of a big deal in Jewish circles. It's not in this text, but we learn later on that he was discipled and mentored by the leading Jewish expert of the day. A lot of what Paul even had as a part of his pedigree, he couldn't even control. He was born into it. He was of of the tribe of Benjamin, which is something you stick your chest out over in Jewish circles. And so he has all of this going for him and he's educated, he's smart. He has all the Jewish law mastered. And every way all of his peers would have looked at him and said, you have what I want. You have everything that the world says, this is life on a silver platter. And then he says, verse seven, but all of that, all of that I consider, I suffer as loss. All of it. And then he even calls it rubbish, which if we want to get really technical of the Greek word, it's dung. And if you don't know what dung is, ask your parents. It's gross. And if you're a parent and you don't know what dung is, ask your kids. Maybe they know. (laughs) But he says, look, that's what I consider all, I suffer the loss of all that. I don't identify with that anymore in the sense of that's not my identity, it's not my worth, it's not my value, I let it go. And why? So that I may gain Christ and know him and know the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering. That he is of such value and beauty and all encompassing satisfaction that I have experienced him to be that I would suffer the loss of that so that I may share in his suffering. C.S. Lewis called God's suffering that he gives us, the, the pain that we experience in this life, the megaphone of God to get our attention that we might actually let go of things that aren't beautiful and valuable so that we may gain the one who is beautiful and valuable. That we may get him, the power of his resurrection. So here's Paul, had all those things and he gave them up. He suffered the loss of those things so that he could share in the sufferings of Christ. What are the sufferings of Christ? Well, straight from the word of God, Christ was despised. He was rejected. He was misunderstood, reviled, oppressed, afflicted, wounded, crushed, acquainted with grief, and we could keep going on and on and on. And Paul says, now listen to this. 
Paul says, I will make that swap every minute, every second of every day. Because that's how good it is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Diane Langberg, a well-known Christian psychologist, she says this, in commenting on that verse, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, she says, to follow Jesus is to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. It means that like him, we will get down in the filth of life in this world. The more we follow Jesus into the dual mysteries of iniquity and suffering, the more of his beauty we will see. Some of you who have suffered a great deal in this life, you follow Jesus and you would say that is absolutely true. I've seen Jesus in ways that I never thought I would see him as I have shared in his sufferings. Job, the, the book in the Bible on suffering. Job gets to the end of the story. He's lost everything. And he gets to the end of the story and there's that famous verse where he says, before I knew of you, God, but after all this, now my eyes have seen you. I've seen the living God. I've seen your value. I've seen your worth. I've seen your beauty. Just so you know that it's not just Paul who talked about this. Another apostle, Peter, he says this in 1 Peter 4. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as murderers or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other, in other words, don't suffer for being a sinner. Suffer because you are attached to Jesus. Augustine once famously said, God has one son on earth without sin, or God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. We share with Christ in his suffering. Secondly, we share in the suffering of Christ together, both locally and globally. And this is the essence of this, the, the main thrust of this series, that yes, we worship together, but part of our worshiping together is that we suffer together. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26, says this, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him. He's talking about the devil. 
Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So suffering in the economy of God and the way that he has designed the church, suffering is not to be just an individual experience. Your suffering is not to be experienced and lived out alone. God's design and his desire is that our suffering is to be experienced in community with one another, in the corporate nature of the body. Now, we know that in a church that is this size, we know that you can't suffer with everyone here, but what does it look like? What does it begin to look like for you and I in the spaces that we have and the relationships that we have within this context of this body to move into each other's lives in a very deliberate, intentional way, full of love to experience together our sufferings. If that's going to happen, if we're gonna bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, if we're gonna mourn with those who mourn, if we're gonna weep with those who weep, then that requires of us to do what doesn't come natural to, to us but came very natural to Jesus. And in, in Jesus' spirit, if you're a follower of Christ, you've, you've put your faith in him, scriptures tell us now his spirit dwells within you, giving you the power to live the life that he lived. Christ through you. And so uh, something that came very natural to Jesus, he was amazing at this, is he was so good at allowing himself to feel what others felt. To move into the spaces of their hurt and sit there. And there's, there's no better story that illustrates this than the story of when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was one of his good friends. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, who were two of his best friends as well. He spent a lot of time with them and Lazarus gets sick and dies. And Jesus does not rush to get to him while he's still sick to heal him. And when he does finally show up, Mary and Martha in a, in a in a way, kind of rip into him. They come at him. They say, if you had been here, Jesus, then Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus, at that point, would have had every right to say, would you just stop? You don't know what I'm up to. I'm about to raise your brother from the dead, so back off. He could have done that, but he didn't. He let them come at him. He was okay in that moment to be misunderstood but he was also willing and ready and eager to move into the pain of loss with them. So as Mary and Martha are grieving, what does he do? Shortest verse in the Bible, he weeps. Jesus wept. He knew what he was about to do. He knew that in just a few minutes, their weeping would stop. But what does he do in the moment? He enters into it with them. And not only does he weep with them as they mourn, but he even, in the verse, the word in the Greek literally means snort. He snorts in anger at death in their presence because he hates death. And the mission of why he even came was to destroy death through the power of his resurrection. And so in that moment, he has every reason to say, I'm not gonna feel what they feel because I know what I'm about to do, but he feels it anyway. He moves into it with them. And he doesn't correct them in the moment to say, you shouldn't be mourning about this. Make sure you hear that. 
We have a tendency to tell people what they should mourn about and what they shouldn't mourn about. Instead of entering into it with them and just saying, I am with you and I wanna feel what you feel. So what does this look like? What, what does it look like for someone who's just recently become a widow? And you don't know what it feels like to be a widow. You're not a widow. But what does it look like to stop and to go, okay, what, if I were to become a widow, what would I feel? And allow yourself to sit in that enough to the extent that it compels you to pick up the phone and say, can I come sit with you? I want to feel what you feel and I want to be with you as you mourn. I want to suffer with you. I want to be in that space with you. And listen, we are all too busy to do that. So don't let busyness be the excuse. All of us are too busy to mourn with those who mourn. All of us. But Christ did not give the call, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, unless you've got a lot going on. He didn't say that. He said, drop what you have going on and weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. I love this stanza from a 18th century hymn. It's called Blessed Be the Tide That Binds, written by John Fawcett. He says this, before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. Third, we share in the glory of Christ. So we share in the sufferings of Christ, but listen, it does not end there. If it did end there, then we would suffer as those who have no hope. We would mourn as those who have no hope, but we suffer also in knowing that the glory of Christ is to come. Listen to these verses, Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. First Peter 5, 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. One of the verses I read earlier talked about this. Peter said, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We suffer not just for the sake of suffering, we're suffering because we know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know from the word of God that your suffering is gonna mean something in glory. It's preparing, I mean, what Paul says there is profound. He says, your sufferings now, your slight and momentary afflictions, he's using that as a play on words because he knows that in the moment it does not feel slight and momentary. But he's saying in comparison to eternity and the glory that is to come, we will most assuredly stand in the banks of eternity right there at the foot of Jesus and look back and say, oh, that was most definitely slight and momentary. 
He says, these slight and momentary afflictions are achieving for us a glory that far surpasses anything that the suffering brings. And in a way that is mysterious yet profound, our suffering is winning for us glory. That we will experience not just the sufferings of Christ, but the glory of Jesus. He doesn't just share his sufferings, much more he shares his glory. And we get tastes of it now, we get deposits of it now. And sometimes it comes in relieving the suffering. We pray for that. We pray, oh God, would you take this away? Paul prayed that. Thorn in the flesh, God, would you take it away from me? We pray for healing. If your suffering is a health, suffering, sickness, disease, we pray that God would take that away. And sometimes he gives us droplets of glory now to say, yes, I'll take it now. Sometimes he doesn't. He withholds those droplets and he says, look, you're gonna be flooded with my glory and healing in the life to come. Be patient. One of the stories I've used often, some of you who've been around for a while are gonna be like, oh my goodness, is he using that illustration again? But it just always makes me think of this. When I think about this issue, I think about that reality as a young parent. My kids don't know what I know. And they especially have no clue what I'm up to when I put them in the car seat to take them somewhere nice. And I remember all these times where we're putting our kids into the car seat and we're buckling them in and they're fighting me like crazy. And they're only perceiving me in that moment as cruel. Why would you do this to me? Why would you constrain me? The belt's too tight. It's pinching my legs. What are you doing? I don't want this. I want to be free. But what they don't know and what I can't help them understand as babies is if you will just trust me, I'm taking you somewhere that you're gonna love. I'm doing a work in this constraining that I'm up to right now, this going that you're going to, I'm taking you to the park, I'm taking you to Chick-fil-A, I'm taking you to get ice cream, I'm taking you to a play date, and you're gonna get there and you're gonna go, the seatbelt was worth it. The car seat, get it, I get it now. But I'll tell you this, I am convinced as I have read and studied the Bible to the point that I have at this point in my life, I am convinced that the majority The majority of the things that we understand about what God is up to in our suffering will not be known until glory. We just won't know. We'll try to figure it out, we'll ask why, and that's okay. But the promise of glory is what sustains us to persevere in the midst of suffering. This is why James said, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. James was not sadistic in nature. He was not saying, hey, when things hurt, just, hey, be happy about it. He was looking to glory. We're able to suffer in the moment, persevere in the moment because of the glory to come. Lastly, and I'll have to hit this one quickly. And I I debated on, do I just just preach this one text that I'm about to share with you? But then I thought, I just wanna get more of a survey of scripture. Psalm 73 is a beautiful psalm, but it doesn't start beautiful. Here's the fourth point, and then we'll jump into it. The fourth point is this. Our perspective in suffering is reoriented when we worship together. Our our perspective in suffering is reoriented when we worship together. So in Psalm 73, it's not a psalm of David, it's a psalm of Asaph. And Asaph is ticked. He's frustrated. And here's what he's frustrated about. He looks at the world around him, specifically at the godless 
And he says this, the wicked prosper. And here I am, God, following you, devoting my life to you. And it stinks. I'm suffering here. It's hard. And he gets to a point in the psalm where he said, he says, have I done this all in vain? Have I worshiped you, God, in vain? And then everything turns. He says, I'll read this part. He says, he says, I thought how to understand this and it seemed a wearisome task. He's just trying to figure it out. God, why would you do this? Why would you let the wicked prosper and the ones who are most devoted to you suffer? And then everything turns on verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And he's talking about corporate worship. Yes, God reorients our perspective on suffering when we meet with him individually. But there is something significant that we see in the pages of scripture time and time again of when people come together, God's people come together. There is a reorienting of perspective on our sufferings, on our hardships that happens in a mysterious way as we worship together, sitting under the preached word of God, singing together, upholding one another before the throne of grace and saying to God on behalf of one another, would you pour out yourself on them? And it didn't happen until Asaph went into the sanctuary. And then watch what happens. Watch how his perspective shifts. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Where is his focus shifted to? Not what's happening now, but to glory. And listen to this beautiful language. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, O God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, Do what you want with me, God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but I've got you. I consider all things lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and sharing in his sufferings. Four ways that suffering comes. This will be very quick. I just want you to have this grid real quick. First, there's consequential, uh, I'm sorry, circumstantial suffering. Quite simply, this is suffering we experience as a result of living in a fallen world. This is suffering that we experience under the sovereign providence of God. In everything, in every suffering, God is at work. He's purposing it. Joseph said, what the enemy intended for evil, God, you turned for good. So just in the way of life and all the ways in which life brings suffering, just the circumstances of life. Even then, God is purposing it providentially. Secondly, consequential suffering. This is simply suffering that comes as a result of our sinful and foolish choices. For the believer, God talks about this in the way of discipline, Hebrews 12. That when we make sinful, foolish choices, just like a father disciplines the the children that he loves, God does the same thing with his children. But there's also outside the bounds of the family of God, there's just consequential uh, suffering. A great example of that right now in the news is the NFL player, Henry Ruggs, who made the foolish decision to drive with twice the limit blood alcohol level, went over 150 miles an hour on a residential road, hit the back end of another car and killed the girl in it. 
Now he's facing four felony charges and the life he knew in the NFL is certainly over and the life he knew of freedom might very well be over as well. Consequential suffering. The consequences of our foolish sufferings. Cultural suffering. These are the sufferings we experience at the hands of godless individual systems or structures. First century church certainly knew about this. They were under the godless pagan authority of the Romans. And they knew that the more that they stood for the truth of God, the more that they would experience the suffering at the hands of the Romans. As suffering comes more and more in our culture today, the more that we stand on the truth of God's word as it pertains to his design for men and women, as his design for sexuality, as we stand more and more on the truth of God's word for the sanctity of human life, all of these things are gonna naturally bring with it more and more cultural suffering. But lastly and most importantly, cross-centered suffering. This is simply the suffering we experience because our lives are centered on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. So what sets us apart? How do we tell the difference between a juniper and a cedar? How do we tell the difference between a Christian suffering and a non-Christian suffering? This one, that last one, that's it. We suffer most of all because we identify ourselves through faith in the crucifixion and in the resurrection of Jesus. And Romans 8 promises us that when we do that, nothing separates us from the love of God. Shall famine, shall sword, shall nakedness, shall sickness, shall demons, angels, anything separate us from the love of God? The answer is no. So may we be a people who steward our suffering well, that we understand it, that we embrace it, and that we steward it to the glory of God. Father, would you help us do that? Would you make us a people who steward well the sufferings that you bring into our life? Father, we thank you. We thank you for the great, incredible promise that our sufferings are achieving for us a glory that far surpasses them all. Lord, and we thank you that we, as we worship together, we suffer together. Would you make us a body that suffers well together as we worship you? Until your name we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.